It's the third week of Advent, and each week we've been looking at aspects of the way in which Christ's coming, Christ's incarnation, breaks into our dismal condition and brings the blessing of God. And so we've looked at light into darkness and life from death, and this week we're considering this idea of love across distance that the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Christ, is a relational move as much as it is anything else. That the God of the universe, who is defined as love, who exists eternally in three persons, a community of the divine, that this is essential to who God is, created the universe, and specifically humanity, with the idea that a multitude of relationships would best manifest the glory of the eternal divine being. That the best way to put on notice what God is like would be to expand the circle of relationships. That's what the creation story is getting at, and that's what the entire biblical narrative is constantly driving at, is the centrality of relationship to the essence of who God is, and our reality as human beings. And so when God takes the decisive step to correct how creation has gone so horribly wrong, it is a relational move as much as it is anything else. So love across distance is the theme that we're considering this week. And I encouraged you in the Facebook post a couple of days ago to look at Luke 15 to consider this. And before we dive into this, just a couple of programming notes. If you've noticed on this podcast that you're missing a couple of sermons, you're not wrong, and we haven't taken a break from our weekly services. And you can still find those recordings on our website. Uh, but uh, we had some uh, staffing and technical difficulties, and so uh, we're a little behind on posting those, but they should be posted by the end of the week. And then for next week, we will have our podcast for the fourth week of Advent. So watch for that on Thursday, but also on Thursday, which is the 23rd of December, the day before Christmas Eve, there will be a bonus bonus episode in which I'll take a a bit of a lighthearted look, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek look at the Christmas story, similar to what I did for Thanksgiving, and we'll be interacting with the story of the Nativity in Luke chapter 2 and asking some of those probing questions about what really happened. But for today, we're diving into Luke 15, one of Jesus' most profound and well-known parables, the parable of the lost son. I want to recommend two resources to you on this parable. The first is an excellent book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God that takes a look at what this parable is saying to us about God and God's posture towards humanity. It's a profoundly insightful work. It's a quick read. It's a short little book, uh, and I highly recommend it. The other is a book that I recommended a few weeks ago by Brian Zond called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And the image on the cover of the book is a depiction of the scene at the end of this very parable. And Zond makes the case that Jesus is what God has to say about God and about humanity and about God's relationship to humanity, and that this parable is Jesus' clearest, in some ways, representation of how we're to understand that. And his take is, again, insightful and profound. So just a couple of things if you want to dig a little deeper into these themes that we're going to touch on today. 
So this parable comes as the third in a string of three parables. And uh, this is one of the things that happens when we break the Bible down into Sunday school tidbits as we forget that things come in a context. So the chapter, uh, Luke 15, uh, contains all three of these parables. And what's interesting is the way that the parables are set up. The first verse of the chapter begins with this narrative note. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, Luke says, he told them this parable. And then proceeds to tell three parables, not a single parable. And so that's a, a tip-off that these three parables are a single parable. They're a single saying that's getting at a truth Jesus wants to communicate. And they come in response to a specific occasion. The religious leadership grumbling that Jesus receives sinners, tax collectors, and eats with them. That Jesus expresses solidarity and engages in fellowship and intimate relationship with people for whom those religious leaders viewed as being outside of God's covenant love. And so Jesus tells these three parables. The first is a parable concerning a sheep and a shepherd. Well, a hundred sheep and a shepherd, and one of the sheep goes wandering away. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to look for the sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, there is great rejoicing, and the shepherd gathers their friends to celebrate, rejoicing over the lost sheep that has been found and restored to the flock. The second parable involves a widow and a set of 10 coins. And these are her entire life savings, her dowry, what she has to live on. And one of the 10 coins goes missing, is lost. And so, of course, she conducts a thorough search of the whole house, lifts up all of the couch cushions, and she finds it. And again, there is rejoicing, and she gathers her friends, and there is a celebration to rejoice over the coin that was found. And then Jesus tells the final parable involving a father and two sons. And this parable is more involved. It's more intricate. But to understand it, we understand the principle laid out in the first two parables. Something of value has been lost. The thing of value in each story increases. One sheep out of a hundred is a significant loss, but it's not a fatal loss. One coin out of ten, 10% of this widow's retirement fund, if you will, is a catastrophic loss for her. But now this man has two sons, and we can see what's coming. One of the sons is going to be lost, because we're already set up to hear that. But in each of the previous two parables, a diligent search is made. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go look for the one lost sheep. The widow searches her whole house for the coin, and the coin and the sheep are found. And when they are found, there is much rejoicing, and a party is thrown. And so Jesus tells this parable, and of course, now it's not a thing, it's a person. And so we're dealing with something far more substantial. And so this father has these two sons, and one of the sons comes to him and says, I want my half of the inheritance now to do with as I want. And the father grants the son that request. And the son leaves the father, literally gets lost, goes to a far country, 
spends every penny of the inheritance over time until he is destitute, finds himself living in squalor among pigs as a swineherd, the lowest, not just menial job, but a job that renders a Jewish person permanently unclean. Think tax collector and sinner. And so this man is in this condition. Verse 17 of chapter 15, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he has a three sentence speech all prepared. He says, I know what I'll do. Even a hired hand in my father's house is treated better than I am being treated here. So he recognizes the generosity of his father. These hired servants have more than enough. And so he says, I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to acknowledge that I've sinned. And my sin is not just against him, but it's an affront to God. I'm going to acknowledge that I am owed nothing. I'm not even owed the title of his son. And I'm going to ask to be treated as a hired servant. The son knows something of the character and nature of his father. He's come to his senses. Literally, the text says he's come to himself. He's been reminded of who he is and who he belongs to, but he doesn't expect that he can ask for more than the status of an employee. And so he arose and came to his father. And here's the key verse, verse 20. While he was still a long way off. One of the things that has always struck me and puzzled me about this passage is that there's this clear progression of the three parables. But there's an element that seems to be missing in this third parable. There's an element that there's no search being made. The sheep is wandered off, the shepherd goes off looking for it. The coin goes missing, rolls under the couch, and the widow makes a diligent search. The son goes missing, gets lost, and it seems as though a diligent search is not made. And that raises some questions. What's going on there? Well, one of the aspects of that is that we're dealing with a human being. Sheep, we can say, get lost of their own choosing, but that's the nature of sheep. The sheep is not morally to be blamed. The sheep doesn't want to get lost, doesn't want to be separated from the flock. The coin certainly rolls away unminded, but it certainly didn't do that on purpose. We humans are a bit different. When we get lost, it is often by our choosing. We put distance between relationships that have become painful or that we feel don't benefit us any longer. Sometimes for understandable and healthy reasons, but oftentimes simply because we feel we'll be better off without them. And this son has discovered that he is not in fact better off without the relationship with his father. And so that's one difference. No good to search for someone who doesn't want to be found. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And so although a diligent search of the kind seen in the first two parables is not present, what is implied and more than implied is that the father has been watching, has been longing, has been eager for the day that his son would come to himself and return home. The father saw him and felt compassion. 
the word for compassion in scripture is one that deals with the depths of our emotions. Deep feeling is felt here, a longing for the good of the object of our compassion. While he was a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, and ran. While there may not be a diligent search, let it not be suspected that the father does not feel keenly the loss of his son and an eager desire to see him restored, and embraced him and kissed him. All of this before the son has even arrived at his destination. And so the father, without knowing anything other than simply the fact that his son is returning, embraces him, kisses him, runs to him, moved by compassion, has been watching for him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember that the son had a three-sentence speech that he had prepared. Well, he only gets two sentences out. He doesn't get to the part about, just let me be one of your hired servants. And I think more is going on here than simply the father interrupts him before he can finish. I don't think the father is even listening. I don't think the father is interested one iota in whatever speech his son has prepared. The father's heart is not moved by the son's contrition, by his compassion, or his confession, by his repentance. And he's certainly not waiting to see what terms the son will offer him to see whether it is worth receiving him back as his son. The, but the father said to his servants, verse 22, but in spite of what the son is saying or without any regard for what the son is saying, because he's already embraced him and kissed him. The matter is already settled in the father's heart. Said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. These are the signs of sonship being restored. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So the Father's heart is clear, and again, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is painting a picture here. Later in chapter 19, at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector whom Jesus receives into fellowship and calls a son of Abraham, he says, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and to save that which was lost. And again, he says that in response to grumbling among the crowds because he's going to go eat with a tax collector. The same statement that started Jesus's parables here. And so he's demonstrating the heart of God that there is nothing we need to do. There is no words that we can say that will persuade God God is not grudgingly offering us forgiveness on a set of conditions. The only thing that is necessary is to run towards God. Because God is ready and eager and anxious to receive us as children. To embrace us. To show compassion to us. To kiss us. To clothe us with the robes of the status of God's children, God's heirs. 
to put shoes of comfort on our feet, to put rings of status on our fingers. And to do what God always does when God's work has been accomplished at any stage of the biblical story, which is to throw a party, to celebrate, to kill the fatted calf and to celebrate because death has been converted to life. The relationship that was decimated has been restored. Now, I said earlier that there's no search in this parable. And I think part of that is resolved by the fact that we're dealing with a different sort of losing. This isn't something that's passively lost. This, this son actively lost themselves. I think it's also resolved, as I said, by the father's active watching the horizon and running out to meet the sun when it's clear that he's coming home. But I think there's something else at work, and this is where Tim Keller's work is particularly helpful. The often forgotten character in this story is the older brother. Remember, there were two sons. And the older son gets grumpy at the end of the parable. And he complains to his father and says, I didn't screw up. I didn't get lost. I didn't waste half the family fortune. And you've never thrown me a party. But this wild one comes home and without any requirement for any sort of repayment, you throw him a party. What gives is in essence what the older brother is saying. And the father says to the older son, much what he said to his servants, your brother was dead, as good as dead. He's brought back to us. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. What else would you do when lost things are found, when things of value, when people have been lost to us and they come back? Of course we celebrate. What kind of person doesn't do that? And this raises the question of the missing search in this parable. It should call to mind the other biblical stories of brothers, particularly when there's two of them. It should call to mind, in fact, the first biblical story in which two brothers are featured. And the question that was asked when one brother went missing and the remaining brother was asked about their whereabouts. Cain said to God, am I my brother's keeper? And that question is left hanging in the air. And the clear implication is that, yes, of course you are your brother's keeper. This is true not just for brothers and sisters, natural siblings, but it's something true for us as humans. God cares deeply about the whereabouts of every one of us. God is watching the horizon for all of us to come home. For those of us who imagine that we are already home, I think we have a responsibility to look out for those who have gone astray. I think we have a responsibility not to dismiss them, not to write them off, but to bring that unconditional love of our heavenly parent across distance. I don't think it was the father's responsibility 
to go out searching for the lost son. I think there's a strong implication in this passage that that was the responsibility of the other brother. And that he spent this whole time not caring. So I want to leave you with two reflections from that. The first is simply this. It is easy to feel lost and alone, especially in the midst of what we've been through the last couple of years, and particularly at this time of year, at a time when there's an expectation of gathering and family and fellowship, it's easy to feel distance. It's easy to feel isolation. And again, all the more now, where gathering may not be seen as much of an option or as safe. I want to encourage you that whatever you feel, God's love reaches across any and all distances, and that all that is required to receive that love is to turn and come home, and God will come running to meet us. God doesn't even expect that we come all the way. God will bridge the distance. Jesus proves it. The other thing is I think this leaves us with a call that if we have experienced that love that bridges distance, that we should constantly be on the lookout for who to include. Again, Jesus shows us this. Jesus is both God, but also human. And as a human, Jesus extended the love that he received from God. The love spoken at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus extends that love readily and easily, graciously, effortlessly, even to tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts of his day, the pariahs of his day. I think we have an invitation to not be like the older brother, but to demonstrate the love that we have received and extend it to others. Love across distance may very well be at the heart of what Advent represents. And so I invite you and encourage you to receive and to give God's love across whatever distances there are this Christmas season.